Welcome to the second episode of the Integrated Schools podcast special, Brown v. Board at 65, the stories we tell ourselves. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from Los Angeles. Segronomics, black teachers, and no leeway rooks. We're joined today by Dr. Noliwe Rooks from Cornell. She's the author of Cutting Schools, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. And she's going to help us unpack some more of the myths we tell ourselves about Brown v. Board. The ways we understand our national histories has a huge amount of influence in the courses we chart for ourselves, in the decisions we make both as a society and as individuals. And so in our first episode last week, we talked to Dr. Rucker Johnson, who laid out his research that shows how school integration or I guess school desegregation has really worked quite well. Yeah. I mean, not perfectly, right? Not at all. (laughs) And and with a focus really being on desegregation and not integration. Right, but it still had really powerful, positive effects for the kids who were exposed to it. And we really only tried it as desegregation for maybe 15 years or something. Yeah, and while there were definitely benefits that Dr. Johnson's work shows, there were also costs, like really high costs. And so that's why I'm excited to talk to Dr. Rooks and bring her work into the conversation. Like her book, Cutting School, and her more recent research on the Black Teaching Corps, we get a much better picture of some of the costs of the way that the policy after Brown v. Board were designed and implemented. Yeah, you know, I think I think she she really helps us highlight a number of these other myths, the stories that we tell ourselves about Brown. Yeah, and we don't want to give it away in our little intro. We can tease it though, right? <laughs> yes. So listen out for what Dr. Rook shares about black schools, about the motivation for Brown v. Board, you know, the lead up to it. Yeah, in addition to what was initially pushed for, also what invariably happened and who paid the price for that. Yeah, and if you haven't read her book yet, the beginning of our conversation gives us a great overview of, of Segronomics. Yeah, oh my God, I want to talk all about this, but we should probably listen to the interview. Let's hear it. Welcome, Dr. Rooks. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? So my name is Noliwe Rooks. I am a professor at Cornell University in Africana Studies, and I direct the American Studies program. I'm also the author of four books, the most recent of which is called Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. I know that our listeners would appreciate hearing a little bit about what segronomics is. Oh, sure. Yeah. It helps me to put it in context um, where the term came from. I found myself in 2009 trying to answer the question of how the various bedfellows, for lack of a better word, (laughs) were intertwined, the intertwined relationships that seemed to uh, have a hand in shaping public education in 2009. You know, the philanthropists, hedge fund folks, college students, politicians. Right. So like all all the people who are driving decisions around education, making change in education, like how did they all sort of find themselves in the same boat? Yeah, I was looking at this and kind of going, you know, why are you all who most of you who have nothing to do with public schools, your children didn't go to public schools, you know, you didn't go to public schools, you don't live in neighborhoods with these bad public schools, why are you trying to do this? And I, I recognized I was trying to figure out where the, the moment was where this started. Honestly, thought I was just going to kind of go back to the 80s or the 70s. But I kept going back, back, back farther and um, to the beginning of public education or state finance, compulsory public education in the United States, which is the post-Reconstruction period following the Civil War. 
And when I got back there, I recognized there were the same relationships. There were these business people and there were these philanthropists and earnest white people, uh, although then they were uh, evangelical religious people, not college students. But but still earnest. But they were very earnest, you know, about <laughs> wanting to fix this problem of education for black children in the rural South while being a little surprised that those relationships were not a 21st century phenomena, I also recognized throughout that research a thread where you always had these groups proposing solutions for children of color, poor children, that looked absolutely nothing like what they wanted for their own kids, but that provided huge kind of profits in various ways for the businesses that they represented. The short way of putting it is segregation has always been really profitable for some people. And so that thinking about segregation and economics and the profit potential in it and the numbers of businesses that actually get proposed that wouldn't exist, like their business model does not work. If you fix the problem of high levels of economic and racial segregation, they're out of business. There's a long way of saying I stuck together segregation and economics and came up with segronomics. So it's basically the way people make money off of keeping us apart. Yes, exactly. For me, at least, it provides an explanation for why it's been so hard in education and and in other parts of American society. Why, despite moments when we, we have all this vigorous effort around fixing this, you know, around saying this educational segregation is not working because resources are not being shared in a way that are helping the least of these. In fact, What keeps happening is the more wealthy communities get to hoard resources in these Mm -hmm. moments where we sort of say, we're going to fix this segregation. I think one of the things that's really interesting to me about your work is the is the financial piece of it. Hmm. You sort of make that link, the 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 financial incentives to keep these things going. Yeah. For certain segments of the society, there's always been this kind of link between the ability of businesses to make money. So like if you wanted a black school, you had to go through getting matching funds and selling all your possessions in order to raise money so that, you know, you could prove that you weren't taking a handout as a community, but that you had self-reliance. And and there's a whole big rigmarole. You have to deed your land. You have to find some land before you can build a school. White people cannot build you a school. It is illegal for to use white money to build a black school. So black people have to build their own school. And then you have to like deed the land where you're going to build your school in perpetuity to white county officials so that they are they are benefiting, you know, from black education. They now have some land that uh, is theirs. And then you have to go find all the materials yourself and then you have to find the labor to build everything. And then after all of that's done, you can actually have a school, but it can only be vocational education. You can only be taught how to do trades. That was the condition for poor Blacks to get even be educated. And that is consistent. That's consistent with poor whites as well. I do make the point that there's some overlap with just how we treat poor people. But for poor whites, they want them to all be farmers. So most of the educational thing, if you're going to educate poor white people, it was some kind of farming. That was it. And then poor Blacks are just all kinds of, of vocational stuff. But the point is, It was lucrative to all kinds of businesses. County Mm -hmm. officials are getting money. You're double taxing black people's white money could not be used 
to educate Black children, which meant the Black communities that wanted education had to pay a double tax. They had to be taxed once for the education of white kids and then to turn around Mm -hmm. and pay an extra tax if their kids wanted to be educated. So those are state and local entities that are benefiting from this kind of undereducation. And it just continues apace. And I think that is one of the most surprising things to me about this work is when you look and if you follow the money, how how often under education is a, a growth market, is got market potential, is enriching all of these businesses. And it's always about educating these populations in ways very different than from the ways that we educate the children of the wealthy. You do not have wealthy kids being pushed into anything that looks like vocational education. It's like, oh, let's give them a classic education. They need to speak Greek and Latin and blah, blah, because it's going to make them citizens and it's going to make them human and their humanity will allow them to do all these other things. That's never what we say about poor kids and kids of color. It's always like they need to be trained in very strict very narrow, very particular way. Can you sort of run that through line all the way through to today, these sort of financial incentive to maintain the current levels of segregation and sort of who benefits from it? The big model for educating kids who, who are in vulnerable communities, you know, have to do with vouchers, charter schools, and cyber education. So in many rural and urban school districts, um, folks are like, let's just not have to worry about decrepit schools or hiring quality teachers and doing a whole bunch with benefits that's bankrupt in the municipality. Let's just do cyber education. We will purchase these companies that are generally for profit companies, privately owned and run. You know, we'll buy a computer for a family and make sure they have internet access. And this is supposed to be the big thing. From the age of five, there are cyber schools that start to educate you from kindergarten that will take you all the way up through college. You never have to step foot in a classroom. And these companies get paid the same amount per pupil as do the entities that are teaching kids in brick and mortar schools. The thing is, everybody knows, even people who support charter schools and support privatized education, admit cyber education does not benefit the kids. Like it doesn't, the kids fail all the tests. There's all kinds of schemes. So it looks like they're attending class, like sitting in their home in front of a computer um, where they say, like, I'm present. Like, you know, they show as I'm here for the day. And then, you know, like they leave the computer on and go off and do whatever and then just come back a few hours later. And then these schools are getting all this money. These kids are failing everything. But somehow they're allowed to expand because they're seen as cheaper. Yeah, I mean, it it feels like cyber schools sort of, in their current form, are really experimental. Right. I guess with a lot of education changes, we don't often see experimenting happening on white kids. Yes. So if your schools are segregated, it provides you with this like ready population that we sort of feel comfortable experimenting on. Meanwhile, the cyber education companies are making huge amounts of money. Their CEOs are making huge amounts of money. Right. Michael Milken, who got famous from the movie Wall Street, Greed is, Greed is Good, when he got out of jail, he, his brother, and another disgraced trader got together and scraped together their last $10 million. I mean, the way they tell this story, right? It's like, yes, we were hardworking. We were laundresses. And in our last $2, right? Like they scraped together $10 million between them. 
and start this K-12 company, which is for cyber education. This thing gets sued and there's like federal racketeering charges and the FBI is continually raiding their headquarters because they're just just bilking school districts. They've been convicted 172 times of different kinds of fraud, and yet they're allowed to continue to operate because they're just simply earning money hand over fist. So you do not find them operating in upper middle class. Uh, Like they would not be in the Ithaca school district talking about, let us educate your children. You know, Ithaca is a highly resourced school district. You only find these kinds of schemes that are income producing like this among entities who are promising to educate the least of these. Native American reservations are, are a growth area they have said they want to get get into kids in foster care um, because they're like, there's a little parental involvement there. And given that lack of parental involvement and, you know, oversight, we can, that's a big growth area. They want to get into juvenile detention centers because again, there's not a lot of parental oversight or pushback. We can make a lot of money there. So the fact that who they target for these schemes, and I call them schemes, you know, makes clear that education is not the point. Money is the point. They are not actually there to to turn this ship around, this undereducation ship around. They're just trying to extract as much profit before the whole thing goes under. Education is not the point. Money is the point. But it's segregation that really makes all of this possible, right? Yes. If you're talking about people on Native American reservations, though we don't talk about it as much, but the levels of racial and economic segregation amongst that population are as high as any place else that we see um, in the country. So it makes sense that it would be a growth area. When you talk about kids in foster care, for the most part, you're talking about people, children, youth, who are coming from these high highly racially and economically segregated communities. It's not that, um, you know, white people aren't in foster care, but it's not something that you're finding in higher income communities regularly. And it's the, the struggling school districts, rural school districts, as well as urban school districts, where you find the school boards, if they're elected or appointed, sort of turning over huge proportions of the district to these these for-profit entities, these charter schools and uh, cyber schools. Again, you don't find it in, in other areas. So that's why I'm saying it's the segregation. Instead of trying to fix the segregation and the poverty that comes along with it in the isolation and the lack of services and all the things that come along with segregation. And segregation for poor people is a hindrance. Segregation for wealthy people is a bonus. You know, they're fine with not having a high level of numbers of special ed kids in their schools. They're fine with not having kids that are coming into schools who may not be eating regularly at home or have certain kinds of social dysfunction at home or high levels of homelessness. It's great for wealthy, well-resourced districts to keep all of them in the city schools where that kind of economic segregation hinders them because it benefits the wealthy community. So unless and until we start talking about redrawing lines, it's not about moving kids around. It's about breaking up that feeling that certain groups are just entitled to more. 
than other groups when you're talking about tax dollars. So, no, Liwei, I wanted to give you a little bit of space to talk about your more recent research. Yeah, you know, so some some more recent work that I've been doing was in part engendered by the fact that after I wrote Cutting School, a lot of the people I was talking with, in Black communities at least, churches, civic organizations, book clubs, you know, things like NAACP small, I'd be talking to 10, 15 people, half of whom actually had a history of educating Black kids, like small little groups. And whenever I would, you know, do the the kind of standard, of course, integration is the only thing that will save schools. It's just kind of a standard, just sort of understood that that's what works. That is what has worked systemically. And therefore, you know, if we're going to fight these systemic inequities, you need a systemic solution. And we know that integration works. However, I would say that and get pushback regularly such that, you know, I became kind of surprised. Like I was kind of like, OK, wait a minute. You know, what 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 is happening here that y'all are saying that you don't think integration works? And what they were saying, I mean, I'm almost ashamed to say what they were telling me back is a part of my family history. So my grandparents in the South, in Clearwater, Florida, were both educators. My grandfather was also very, very much involved in politics. He was, you know, local NAACP president, the Black Teachers Union president, um, an organization he founded called the Progressive League of African-American voters or Afro-American voters. And what he and others really advocated for in organized ways from the 1920s on up to Brown really was for a kind of strengthening of Black civic and educational organizations and a vision of what integration could look like that was very different from what got implemented. What they argued for across the South was a model of of integration that sent the teachers first, right? So think about this. You have an educational model that's sending white teachers and administrators to black schools, black teachers and administrators to predominantly white schools. You do that for a few years and then you send the kids. Then after the adults have worked out what the infrastructure will look like, what the curriculum will look like after they've gotten used to each other and over their prejudices and and and, and all the groups are getting paid the same, which was a big thing. They were like, that's why we need to start with the teachers, because if we do this this way, then first of all, we're, we're going to equalize teacher salaries and we won't be paid so little. Also, if you're sending white teachers and white administrators into black schools that are all decrepit, the money will follow them as well to, to fix them. Right. Um, so you do that first. I mean, it's almost it's a it's a different version of what integrated schools is trying to do. What they what they were proposing was something very different. They were they were proposing democracy and they were proposing economic equality as a part of the integration effort that would then lead to educational equality. They were proposing reworking an entire society by having, you know, black administrators and and teachers enter each other's schools first, work out how we're going to educate first and the integration would been on the backs of the adults first. Yeah. And then you send the kids after that. Instead, of course, what happened is the Black schools and Black teachers all got fired. H- how is it that these master teachers of Black kids, who are legendary in most people's memory, um, what you hear about are these teachers who were able to educate with little to nothing, 
kids from all kinds of economic backgrounds in Black communities to the highest levels that white society would allow them to rise to. So, you know, the doctors, the lawyers, like they're all coming through Black communities. They're all coming through Black teachers. Like, how is it that those people would say what is in their best interest is to send these children into hostile white environments. My my grandfather would tell stories regularly about being the house being shot at, crosses being burned on the lawn, public intimidation. These folks knew exactly who the enemy was, exactly the links that they would go to. How do you decide that you're going to send your babies to those schools? by themselves. And the fact that I never stopped to ask the question that way, what was going on behind the scenes? What were they thinking that this was their strategy? Because it doesn't make sense in a way. And it's certainly after you see the first scenes of the Little Rock Nine and um, is one of the the first the first spaces where uh, the integration test really took place. And, you, you know, you had a year of hell. And if Black people and Black people had to have heard the stories about what those children went through, where acid is thrown in their face, people are throwing dynamite down the stairs at them. They're being physically attacked by teachers in the hallway in front of these soldiers. As those stories are going around Black communities of the links that white people are willing to go to in the school where it's hand-to-hand combat, in what universe do you decide to send your children there? Topeka, Kansas, where Brown v. Board, you know, the lead case of the cases that became Brown v. Board, you know, one of the under-discussed results of that decision as white folks across the South really dug in and massively resisted the idea of integration is they figured out ways to close all kinds of Black schools and they figured out ways to fire Black teachers. When they fired the Black teachers in some states, You're talking about a third to a half of the black teaching force so they could hire white teachers because integration is coming now. So we're going to have to have more teachers teaching in the white schools because it never occurred to anybody that you'd be sending white kids to black schools. So the result of Brown v. Board was closing black schools and firing black teachers, which just further enriched white people. I think there's this idea that the white people had the great schools, and so the people of color just wanted access to them. And that was sort of the, you know, this like desperation for good education was where all of the impetus for Brown came from. And I feel like that's that's not exactly right. You even had Linda Brown's parents where they're saying, you know, we didn't have a problem with our schools. Our teachers were amazing. The black teachers at the school she would have gone to, I went to that school. My husband went to the school. We think that it was first class education. They taught you to withstand everything. They taught you to love yourself. They taught you about who you were in ways that help you progress. They were strong, strong teachers. We just didn't want to have to, to cross all these streets. Like it was a it was a transportation issue, not a quality of school issue for us. And in the aftermath of Brown and and in the oral histories, they're they're almost lamenting or or her mother is almost lamenting, you know, that we did something to dismantle like 80 percent of the teachers in that school that she's talking about got fired. Mm. 
because the school board immediately says, well, okay, let's build another white school. Let's, because we have to now absorb these Black students. So we think, you know, in response to Brown, but surely you don't expect us to let Black teachers teach white students. Our vision, what we understand the Supreme Court to be saying is Black students now need white teachers, so there's no need for Black teachers. It's this heartbreaking sort of missed history and misunderstanding of what the teachers were advocating for versus what actually happened. I didn't realize that this was actually a transportation issue by Linda Brown's family. Yes, yes. They didn't want her to have to walk across the big, I don't remember if it was a four-lane road or it was a big road that she would have had to, to walk across. And they couldn't get her there because of working every day. And so it was for her safety. I, I somehow never heard that the Browns had zero problem with the Black school. That that piece of it is definitely a piece that uh, has been shocking to me as well. Because, right, like, you know, the, the image you have is like, there are these terrible, terrible schools that everybody's sad about and they want a good school. And so the white school is the good school. And that's where they want to be able to send their kids to the good school. Yes, to go back and find that they were like, the schools were awful. We didn't have books. You know, they were giving us the hand-me-down, torn-up books. We didn't have heat in the winter. Like the schools, the infrastructure was awful. The teachers were excellent. Mm-hmm. We did, we wanted better schools, but somehow the teachers, nobody ever said we wanted different teachers. And so that we embarked upon a path that got rid of both. Uh, but in some communities, literally 80, like Topeka, 80% of the teachers end up fired. And the interviews, we have some of the interviews of when they go to interview for jobs to teach the white kids. So, you know, the black teachers who are winning all kinds of awards and, you know, even, you know, the boards of education in these segregated places are saying, you are a great teacher. Oh my God, teacher of the year, teacher of the year. You know, even when they go and interview to try to teach white children, children, the feedback is often, I just didn't like something about her. I just wasn't comfortable. I don't think our parents in Topeka will stand for this or the, I don't, they, she won't deal well with those parents, right? Like, so none, no black teachers end up hired in Topeka, Kansas, which is the seat of Brown v. Board after they've closed the one black school. It's in collections of oral histories that Linda Brown's mother, she had some regret about what she did. While pride, of course, that they and their child have become the symbols of, you know, civil rights and progress. You know, but she's like, but why everybody keeps saying our schools were bad? And more to the point, you know, the schools could have used some some modernization. Like no nobody is saying schools were in great physical shape. But the teachers, the teachers were the key. And that nobody talked about teachers in the entire case. It led me to look back through the entire Brown, the transcript, the ruling. Nobody even mentions teachers in the whole thing. Mm. Like so as a part of the integration effort, that very, very important aspect of education for anyone is left out. So then they just ran around and hired a bunch of willy-nilly white teachers. You mean It's not, you know, like a, a qualified white teachers can teach anybody or whatever. Well, half of these teachers didn't want to teach black kids. 
kids. And then you just hired a bunch of other people because, you know, now you fired all the black teachers and you got you got this census that's growing. There's this quote I found from MLK uh, when he's in Atlanta in uh, like 1957, eight. He's talking to a to the black teachers union and he says, you know, we have to fight hard or we're going to end up integrating ourselves out of power. We did not start start this to integrate ourselves out of power. But what he's talking about is exactly what happened in its in its schools and kids and communities that have suffered as a result. You know, I'm thinking a lot about some of the myths in reference to like Brown v. Board. And I think one of those myths is that there are certain parents who do and certain parents who don't care about education. Right. And you see this like Anytime anyone writes anything about the problem with our educational system, there's going to be in the comment section, well, it's all about those parents. If they just cared about education more, more. (laughs) they just valued it the same way we did, then they're welcome to come to our school. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about race. It's just about do they care enough about their kids' yeah, it's education? All this, it's individual, that grit narrative, right? If you had parents that cared more and kids, if we teach them grit, right. all of this would be fixed. It's the, and there's, a, there's something broken in the people, not the system. Or how are you going to blame the hardworking white people that this is the case? So generally, we will point a finger at individuals and are fine with individual effort. And we will glom on to every story of someone who beats these odds and say, see, if they could do it, why couldn't you? Someone who who manages to run the gauntlet and get into these schools and have a good life after, that becomes a pushback to every story about this large scale exclusion from from taxpayer resources. If Barack Obama could do it, why can't you? Oprah Winfrey got through. What's wrong with your kid? So all of the stories of winning few though they may be, become the the bar that we're all supposed to reach for. And so you're not supposed to ask questions. It's just because those communities are lazy and those parents don't know how to parent properly. What's that called? You know, people always say the best trick the devil ever pulled off was... Convincing the world he didn't exist. Right. Like that's almost like what's happening here where we're, those in power have almost convinced us convince some of us that inequality really does not exist, that segregation really doesn't exist, that it really is where people want to be and it's just the luck of the draw or hard work or grit that accounts for the way the world works. Meritocracy. Yeah, it's just meritocracy. Meritocracy actually works. Don't look behind this curtain. Don't question. And again, that's what, you know, I and others are really trying to point out. Yes, individual effort is fabulous. More power to you. You know, if you get through there, we all want you to write the how-to book to teach us, you know, what you did. That is not a solution to what's broken here. Right. The, the fact that there are a few exceptional people who have who have figured out a way to make the system work to their benefit Mm -hmm. you know that doesn't account for the plethora of wildly unqualified white people (laughs) who who have just found themselves in boardrooms in government in all of these places the fact that a handful of exceptional people have figured out how to make the system work for them is not a proof that the system is not trying to work against them doesn't mean the system is just it doesn't mean that it's a meritocracy what what white parents are willing to do or wealthy parents, I want to say mostly white parents, but wealthy parents are willing to do to ensure that their kids get 
what they believe to be the best of everything, the links that they will go to, to, to keep out anything that they believe might in any way damage the, the psyches or the futures of their children. That's the legendary stories, like really. So I think that's interesting, right? Like, what is this popular narrative? What you're saying is that these pieces of history are really hidden. Yes, but not. They're like hidden in planes. But they're not part of our national story. They're not part of the narrative, no. Exactly. And and so I guess, like, who's benefiting by that being outside of the story? Um, It works with our national narrative. Yeah. And and with wanting to demonize a region of the country, you know, people offer the other pushback I get regularly when I want to talk about this, but people are constantly like the North was as bad. The laws just weren't written, you know, just not just written in. So, you know, white people in the North just sort of picked up and left areas or went to neighborhoods so they could have majority white schools. Or I mean, you know, you end up with majority white schools with all the resources and black schools without them in the North, as well as the South, with or without the sanction of law. But how you get to a narrative that sounds like, well, now we've healed it. Now we've fixed it. Now uh, we know what the issue is and there's no more, nothing to look at here, you know, move along is to say the issue is put all the black kids into white schools, which is not what people were asking for. You know, along with these sort of misguided narratives that we've been told, certainly that I, that I've come to understand. One of the ideas is that this wasn't a problem in the North, that because it wasn't so blatant and written into law in the North, I wonder if there was a a piece of that that allowed people to say, you know, here are these racist laws in the South. Right. We've overturned those. And so now everybody can do it like we do in the North. Yes. But then the North is is the exact same thing just without the laws. And, you know, the the thing about the North. So in New York City, which is a a constant state of how can we segregate racially segregate our schools? um, The largest civil rights demonstration ever, 400 thousand people get together to march asking for integrated schools, like a plan, a plan to integrate New York City schools. But then you have a couple of thousand white mothers in New York City who go out marching in the rain, complaining and saying, oh my God, my poor child, what will happen? And the the will of those couple thousand mothers, I mean, when you read the newspaper reports, it's just, look what these politicians are doing. These poor mothers, they should be at home tending their kids and they're out in the rain getting wet, you know, and, and just asking us for their our protection. And, let's, and that's what carries the day. So you have 460,000 versus I think it's like 3,000 or something. Uh, mostly mothers, all white people who are uh, arguing against this, against coming up with a desegregation plan. All the 400,000 people were asking for was a plan. Can we talk about, can we come up with something? And they were, you know, refused to even do that. So the North is implicated in this anti-busing, don't force Black children on white parents who don't want them. Right. The North way of dealing with it has just been to not deal with it, to not talk about it, to not make it uh, an issue and to just sort of quietly support efforts that will keep schools segregated. Yeah, I think euphemisms are a really powerful way to avoid. It's like when we're talking about busing or parenting, we don't have to talk about racism. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and then there's this like version of it that is 
quote unquote colorblind that is it's just about housing values or it's just about, uh, you know, the educational models or it's just about all these various other things that this narrative of continually hoarding funds for some groups of people. Whatever the groups of people are in the history of American public education, the people who have to make do with less, whatever, whoever's hoarding, the people make do with less are black and brown poor people always. And it's almost like you have to try, you have to work at um, having that be so consistently true in the history of the United States, the entire history in every region that just doesn't happen by accident. No, it happens through really intentional, deliberate work. I mean, mm-hmm. we we interviewed Elizabeth McRae, who wrote Mothers of Massive Resistance. Yes, that's a great book. Um, it was really intentional, thoughtful, grassroots kind of advocating and organizing that maintained these systems of segregation. Yeah, and I think the more like books like that and others that, that really expose that, that's what's needed. Right. What would happen today if we said what we're going to do is, well, first of all, you'd have to find enough Black teachers to be putting in schools. But what, instead of starting with the kids, what would it look like? And I don't have an answer for it, right? But what would it look like to first have integrated teaching forces and administrators in schools and have them figure out the best way to then integrate kids? Like, is that even something that would work today? And I don't know. It's it's a it's a powerful piece of the story. It's a piece of the story that doesn't get told, but I think it's also a piece of the story that if we, if we can actually, I don't know that we are capable of, but were we to actually grapple with like what it actually means, the sort of the, the truth that it's trying to get at potentially, you know, maybe it's not that we start by integrating teachers. I don't know, you know, is is that possible or not? But at least if we get rid of this idea that the only way to educate is the white way to educate. That the yes. only way to have a good school is a white school. That whiteness yes. needs to be centered. Yes. That 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 whatever we can do to push back against that is sort of the first step to actually being able to educate all of our kids rather than the handful of kids of color who are willing to sort of acclimate themselves to a yes. white culture. Yeah, exactly. It's a question without an answer. And I think that's the for an academic I'm I'm into, but it is then frustrating for people who are like, we're trying to save our kids because they're like, okay, what do we do? And if I start telling this story, right. then I have rooms full of people going, okay, so we need to send the black teachers to the white school. And I'm like, okay, I don't know if that's going to work. I'm just telling you what the people who were doing it, you know, <laughs> before proposed. So it's right. frustrating on the one. And we just, we really don't know. There's almost no research to show what an integrated teaching, because we don't, we don't, and we've never had, we, even when in the heyday right. of uh, integration in, in the South, uh, the 14, 15 years where, where we actually sort of started letting it work and test scores started rising, that still wasn't, these were not integrated teaching core. So we right. still don't know. So it's still an open question. But it, I mean, it does seem like the, the instances of really strong black schools, you know, Ivy Leaf schools, the um, it's the lady in the Oakland right. community yeah. schools, these sort of things yeah. that you write about. There's a fundamental belief in and expectation of mm-hmm. kids of color. Mm-hmm. That seems to me at least to be one of the things that we're lacking. All these things that we that set us up to not have high expectations for people. And and when you had these sort of schools run by people from the community recognizing the value of education and believing that the kids were capable, that's where you had the best yes, outcome. Yes. So why isn't the answer then to recreate the black schools of the past? What is what is the benefit of integration rather than sort of 
mobilizing the black community to recreate those spaces. The thing about integration is just simply it's the only thing that has systemically worked. The ways that white people fight to hold on to resources historically at every moment mean that ensuring equal resources for vulnerable communities looks like a losing proposition. Like we can keep asking, right? But there's very little to to show that that's going to work. Everyday folks who are not sitting around reading academic texts, which is, you know, 99% of, of the United States, what everybody else does is just think about their own experiences and their own motivations. And they can't see beyond their neighborhood school narrative or their historical narrative. And then they generalize that to everything, to, to the whole. So if they are just like, you know, I want the best school for my kid, and then everybody else can find the best school for their kid, then we're good can sometimes make it difficult for everyone to actually see how there's an intent behind where we find ourselves. Yeah. Um, it we did not just sort of happen this way. And it's not individual desire. It's not, you know, f- familiar intent. It's not your, in your backyard, what you did. It's a much larger, longer story. And uh, I'm waiting for the presidential candidate to contextualize education issues with that history. And not with just the present. Like, talk about the history. Talk about how we got here sometime. Um, and not this both sides. Of course, every other good people all around. Um, well, there, there may be. And that's true because these are systemic issues that have nothing to do often with what individuals chose. A- except for the people in your organization, of course, Courtney, who are making individual <laughs> uh, determinations to combat these systemic issues as a way of helping, you know, while while we're waiting for the rest of the politicians to get it together. The hope is that more people being actively engaged is what actually holds the politicians accountable to doing something about it. Yeah. Eventually. I mean, well, well, more people who um, have some resources and who are listened to, like, quite frankly, right? Like, it, right. it's having right. white parents will attract a kind of scrutiny and maybe a kind of grace that will get the issue. So it's a multi-prong. That's not the only thing that will do it. But but to have white yes. parents and kids be making these intentional decisions um, on the side of right, to my world on the side of right, then helps bolster the the calls and the strategies and the narratives coming from people who are less well-situated. That's the hope. That's the hope. <laughs> That's the dream for sure. Yeah. For sure. I just, uh, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your time, as always. This has been amazing. Thank you, Dr. Ricks. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you all for having me. This is great. I'm excited. Because yeah, you guys' podcast is just blown up, right? It's good, Newlyway. It's really good. Yay. You got to be kind of proud. Shocked, for sure. Seriously? <laughs> like, really? Like, did you, or were you surprised when thousands of people started downloading things? Yeah. But when we when we had I think when we hit, hit 300 downloads we were like oh my god 300 people have downloaded this this is crazy. <laughs> Dr. Rex was really great. Yeah, as always. And did I tell you, Andrew, that she came to one of our online book clubs? It was amazing. That's awesome. And then now she is on the uh, advisory board for Integrated Schools, right? 
Yep. We should make sure listeners know she's helping to guide this organization. Yeah. And we are grateful and integrated schools is much better for it. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that, that stands out to me from this conversation and, and just from reading her work in general is, is this idea of segronomics, like how much money there is to be made on keeping us separate. Yeah. And while often this is like incredibly nefarious, it's also really cloaked in this like well-meaning sounding for the kids stuff, right? right? When she was talking about the nice white college students, you know, I was thinking about all the ways that well-meaning white people with all these good intentions can do real harm. Yeah. The idea of helping sounds really wonderful, right? But it can be incredibly problematic. Yeah. So, you know, this isn't like do not help ad- admonition, right? right. But, but I think we really need to be mindful of the fact that impact matters and matters more than intent. And so right. she had me thinking a lot about the white savior philanthropy complex and how, you know, this works to kind of cement in narratives around who needs help, who is able to help. And of course, the fabulous Facebook pictures of doing the helping that gets your aunt from Omaha to like, talk about what a wonderful person you are. Right. Yes, that's that's definitely that's definitely real. And and you know that that happens right alongside of the sort of more nefarious forces that we can point to and I think you know in many ways that that sort of provides cover for those more nefarious forces. The Yeah. The money in segregation is just is just mind-boggling. That's yeah. I'm, I'm just struck by that and and I think it you know it it relies on this narrative that communities of color A don't care about education, B don't know how to do education and and therefore need some sort of saving. Yeah. And then like Dr. Rook shows the history of how communities of color have had to work exponentially harder to get dramatically less. Right. Paying paying their taxes for the white schools and then paying another set of taxes for the privilege <laughs> of their own schools that just went right back into white coffers. Yeah. And all the while ignoring the stated goals of black teachers. Yeah, that piece was really interesting, right? Starting integration with the teachers. Like you can imagine we would be in a very different world if we had done that instead of firing all the black teachers and and maintaining this white centered school system. Yeah. I mean, it's no wonder that for a lot of communities of color, school desegregation has had some incredibly negative connotations. Yeah. You know, and again, I feel like it's it's not as much as the what of desegregation, but the how of design and implementation. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the lesson here, the the sort of new story that we can tell is that for school integration to work, we have to approach this work in a way that doesn't rely on on white normed ways of thinking. You know, integration has to be about creating spaces that welcome and value everyone. And and that's a piece that we've just never really done. And, and I think we've never really done it in part because of these stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah, that piece is really important. There was always and still continues to be intent behind where we find ourselves. The the system is working as it was designed to work, right? This is no accident. This is no like throwing up of our hands and saying, well, you know, our neighborhoods are segregated, so it's just how things are. You know, like stories like that erase intent and that kind of erasure really makes it difficult to to do anything different. Yeah, I mean, I think that the anything different that we'd like to do is, you know, is to know these stories, is to keep yeah. them in the forefront of our consciousness, and then use that to make corrective efforts, right? To try to improve things both at the policy level, but also at the playground level, at the individual choice level. Yeah, and so at this point, like when we have very few truly integrated schools, and where policy for school integration and educational justice is being undermined at most every turn, there really are things that we as individual parents can do. Like, desegregate our kids and integrate our families. Right. Do our homework and know these stories. 
And we want to thank all of you who've made it possible for us to share these stories. And all of you who are about to. That's right. This is a labor of volunteer love, and it's your financial support that makes it all possible. So if you'd like to be a part of continuing this effort, please head on over to integratedschools.org and click that donate button. And share this podcast on your social media. Send it to your favorite mommy bloggers. Post it in your Facebook parent groups. And we're incredibly grateful for your feedback. So keep that coming. Send us voice memos, emails, comments, questions, thoughts for future episodes. Send them all to hello at integratedschools.org. And we are happy to be in this with you as we try to know better and do better. See you next week.